The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor to bring our listeners Mr. Sandor Elix Katz. He is a self-taught fermentation experimentalist. He wrote Wild Fermentation, the Flavor, Nutrition, and Craft of Live Culture Food in 2003, which Newsweek referred to as the Fermenting Bible. Katz has taught hundreds of fermentation workshops across North America and beyond, taking on a role he describes as a fermentation revivalist, and I have to agree with that. And now in his new book, The Art of Fermentation, which in my opinion is indeed a Bible, he really shares a more in-depth exploration of the topic. He is formerly known as the author of The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved, the Inside America's Underground Food Movements book. I met Sandra Katz probably, oh gosh, maybe six or seven years ago when he was on a panel with his first, I think it was a booklet then, about fermentation. And I was skeptical because, well, as I explained before the show to Sandor, I am a little leery of fermentation. I'm afraid of it. But I've watched Mr. Katz's career grow, and I've watched his books evolve, and I am convinced that if anybody wants to get involved with fermentation, this is the gentleman to go to, and this is the book to have. So, Sandor, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be with you. When I first started out, I told you I was afraid of fermentation, and you're going to alleviate all that, but I want to know one thing. How did your love for pickles as a child lead you to become obsessed with fermentation? Well, I mean, there were, there were uh, you know, a number of discrete steps along the way. I mean, I grew up in New York City. I did love sour pickles as a kid. I've always been drawn to, to that flavor, the lactic acid flavor. But nobody in my family was practicing fermentation. We weren't talking about fermentation. I guess in my, in my 20s for a few years, I was following a macrobiotic diet, and macrobiotics really places a great deal of emphasis on the digestive stimulation of pickles and other live culture foods, and that was when I started noticing how the the smell and the flavor of lactic acid would make my salivary glands go crazy so i really felt you know it got my digestive juices flowing in a very literal tangible way but it really wasn't until i moved from new york city to rural tennessee and started having a garden that I had a reason to ferment anything. And that first season that I was gardening, um, you know, there were two rows of cabbages, and they were all ready at about the same time. And so, you know, the the challenge was, what are we going to do with all that cabbage? And the answer that came to my mind was, let's make sauerkraut. So, you know, literally I looked in the joy of cooking, and I learned how to make sauerkraut. And I started making sauerkraut, and then there were all these berries that needed using, and I decided to try making some country wine. And then there was the milk from our goats, and uh, I started making yogurt. And I had done a little bit of baking with yeast, but I started playing around with sourdough baking, and it just kind of all grew into a big obsession with all things fermented, all things transformed by microorganisms. So my fear of fermentation stems probably from 
the era in which I grew up where we had this fear of leaving food outside the refrigerator. And we knew that there were good bacteria, but we were also raised to be fearful of bad bacteria. So you've got something that's fermenting in the refrigerator, or probably everybody's familiar of milk gone bad. And so maybe those are the roots of our fear, would you say? Well, I mean, I think that the earliest triumphs of microbiology involved identifying pathogenic bacteria. So I think very early in the popular imagination, as soon as we knew about bacteria, which was, you know, 150 years ago, what we knew were about dangerous bacteria. And until relatively recent years, when people talked about bacteria, generally they were talking about, you know, pathogenic things that could make us sick. But the unfolding reality is that, you know, the cells in our bodies are outnumbered 10 to 1 by bacteria that are part of us. And we couldn't possibly function in the world without them. And the same is true of plants. The same is true of other animals. All life is descended from bacteria. That's the emerging consensus in evolutionary biology. And the corollary to this that doesn't get talked about as much is that no other form of life has ever lived without bacteria or could possibly live without bacteria. So our view of bacteria is changing. And so, you know, on the, on the one hand, we have this war on bacteria mentality that bacteria are bad. We should kill them all. We see this reflected in, for instance, the marketing of antibacterial soaps. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing sexier that you can write on a container of soap than that it kills 99.9% of bacteria. But really, it's not a very desirable or helpful thing to kill 99.9% of bacteria because, you know, the reason why we are not continually succumbing to bacterial disease is that we are protected by bacteria. And in our bodies, as in the fermentation processes that have endured through thousands of years, it's the bacteria that protect us from the relatively small number of bacteria that have the potential to make us sick. Mm -hmm. I love that you recognize that every single ethnicity and culture, pardon the pun here, sort of, have fermented foods. And then something happened, you know, when we came to maybe the new country, and some cultures and ethnicities brought those foods with them. But then there was also writing in the literature that said that they were foods to be shunned. Right, right. Well, I mean, in my book, I write a little bit about some of the writing of uh, dietitians uh, yeah. around the beginning of the 20th century who were looking at, um, you know, some of the foods that uh, some of the immigrant groups brought with them. And, for instance, you know, pickles were seen as a sign of, you know, moral degeneration. And children eating pickles was like children drinking alcohol. I think that we have abandoned those views um, uh, long ago, and I think um, you know now there, there's a general um, uh, you know appreciation for the fact that pickles were a practical strategy that people in temperate regions, you know, and some tropical regions all around the world have used in order to preserve vegetables that have a, a relatively uh, you know short season to enjoy for the rest of the year. Yeah, I'd like to think that dietitians have evolved a bit in our thinking and that we're embracing fermentation. I know there was a big conference. But, but I, I mean, I, I do want to just address your question about safety because yes. it really is the, the, the biggest question that I get. Okay. Um, uh, you know, how can I be sure that I'm getting the right bacteria growing? And let me, like in, in, in terms of fermenting vegetables, which means, you know, fermented pickles, sauerkraut, kimchi, really a broad array of things, you know, ve- vegetables fermented by lactic acid bacteria under a brine in a salty environment. In the United States, there has never been a single documented case of food poisoning from fermented vegetables. 
There are not many foods you could say that about. This suggests that fermenting vegetables makes them safer than they were raw because we hear every year about people getting sick from lettuce, from tomatoes, from spinach, from different raw vegetables. There always is the possibility of contamination. It usually happens in the field. It could happen in handling, but there's always that possibility. If you took um, vegetables that had been contaminated in some way um, by, by bacteria and you made sauerkraut out of them, uh, or any fermented vegetables, basically the indigenous population of lactic acid bacteria would dominate over any incidental contaminant, and as they acidify the environment, they would make it impossible for any kind of pathogenic organisms um, you know, to survive. That's and that's a- why sauerkraut is just such an incredibly safe food. There is no reason for anyone to be concerned about fermenting raw vegetables. It's interesting that you bring this up because in my earlier life, I worked at a university extension, and I used to answer food safety questions, and people would call up in the summer invariably with preserved foods gone wrong. And one of the questions they would call about on occasion would be sauerkraut. And I think that you know the formulas that you give in the book are very helpful. I mean, this is truly a Bible in the sense that you're going to give not only the history and the the beauty and discussion about fermenting foods, but also the how-to steps, which we all need, and the enthusiasm to get started. And I told you before the show, I'm, I can't wait to try maybe pickling okra this summer. But the formulas are very important. So if people don't maybe add enough salt, could there be a problem? Not really. Really? I mean, I mean, there there are people who are nationally distributing salt-free sauerkrauts. I mean, they don't. I, I mean, I would say they don't taste very good. They would taste much better with some salt. But you don't need a lot of salt, and salt is not really what's creating the safety. Uh, you know, salt is helping to maintain a, a good texture, a, a crispiness to it. Um, but but salt is not the essential. Um, you know, or, or a lot of salt is not is not essential. I mean, a lot of the traditions where where the sauerkraut was very salty, it was because if this is a survival food, if this is the only vegetables with vitamin C that you're going to have over the course of the long you know winter where there's no where there's no fresh vegetables, well then you sort of have an incentive to use a lot of salt. And and uh, in places where they had access to salt, they tended to make it really salty. But there is no necessity of making it extremely salty. You can make it with no salt. It won't taste as good. I I recommend just salting to taste, salting lightly, mixing it all up, and then just tasting it and adding more if you like. So the acidity is the protective factor. Where does the acidity come from? The acidity comes from lactic acid bacteria. And lactic acid bacteria are universally present on raw plant material. The sauerkraut fermentation is is generally initiated by bacteria uh, whose Latin name is uh, Leuconostoc miserantoides, and it's found on all raw plant, all land-based plant material on the earth. And you see, what the ferments amount to at at a practical level is manipulations of environmental conditions to encourage the growth of certain types of organisms rather than certain other types of organisms. So you take a piece of cabbage and you leave it on your counter, it's never going to turn itself into sauerkraut. And we can kind of predict what will happen, and probably some of your listeners, like myself, have had experiences like this where you leave some piece of vegetable that's left over out on the counter. You think you're going to use it the next day. You don't. You end up going away. You come back after a few days, and it's covered with mold. 
Mm-hmm. Like the, the the cut edges dry a little bit, and then it starts to develop a dark colored mold. And if it were hot and humid enough, those molds could literally reduce a head of cabbage into a puddle of slime that would bear no resemblance whatsoever to you know tangy, crunchy, delicious sauerkraut. And so the difference is that when vegetables are exposed to air, molds will typically be what dominates. The reason why we make sauerkraut submerged under liquid is to protect the cabbage and other vegetables from the air, from the oxygen. Without the oxygen, the molds can't grow, and what will uh, dominate in that environment are lactic acid bacteria. And as they produce lactic acid, fewer types of bacteria can survive in that acidic environment. And so all the ones that we would uh, regard as pathogenic, you know, those are destroyed by the, the acids that form. So are there indicators of spoilage, and then under what conditions might that happen? Well, I mean, okay, so there's always a surface. I mean, unless you have some sort of an engineered environment, the surface gets exposed to oxygen. And so the experience that many people have when they make sauerkraut is that the surface develops molds or yeast. Right. And so, um, you know, what, what people historically have done is they scrape off the top layer. You know, and anything that's growing on the surface, you just you just scrape that all away. Scrape away, you know, anything that seems discolored in any way. Get rid of that. Throw it in the compost. But what's under that is very much protected. I see. Um, you know, the other kinds of things that can happen over time, enzymes can activate, which will digest the pectins, which are what keep the vegetables crunchy. So especially when people make pickles out of cucumbers, the, first of all, the cucumbers are, are ripe when it's hot, when those enzymes are most active. And also they just seem to be active faster in waterier vegetables like cucumbers. But, you know, eventually these enzymes will make the kraut mushy, which to me is a very undesirable characteristic. So, you know, eventually I will throw it in the compost because I don't like the, the texture anymore. It's not an issue of toxicity. If you tasted it, you know, you might spit it out because the texture is so odd, you know, but it, w- it wouldn't hurt you. Um, so really it's the visible surface molds. Of it's the softening which can happen over time. You know, certainly if you leave it exposed to um, flies, you can, you can end up with you know maggots crawling out of it. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are abundantly visible that could potentially go wrong. But you don't have to worry about uh, you know invisible dangers. Oh, that's I mean, you so know good there has know. not been a problem yet in the United States with sauerkraut. Oh, that's great to know. Okay, I have to. We have to take a little break here and just remind our listeners that we are talking to the Sandor. Katz, and he is the author of a new book called The Art of Fermentation, and it is indeed an in-depth exploration of essential concepts and processes from around the world. I love this book, and anybody who wants to experiment with this process, I heartily recommend. You've got incredible endorsements, by the way. You've got endorsements by some of the leading food people in the world, Michael Pollan, Deborah Madison, Sally Fallon, Gary Paul Naban. Everyone is raving about this book. Okay, so my next topic is it has to also get back to safety, and that has to do with what we are going to ferment our products in. And one of the questions that I also received when I was working in Extension was, well, what about the crocs? And you know, I had people who were wanting to make sauerkraut in garbage cans. And, of course, we had to say, no, that's not a food-safe container. But at the same time, it's hard to maybe, you know, if you have an old crock, is there the risk of lead poisoning? You very smartly bring out the fact that plastic containers also will have migratory compounds, endocrine disruptors. We don't want to use plastic. What are the best crocks? And I know you have a resource list in the back, but 
What would you tell people about what to ferment in? Well, first let me just say, like, if, if, if someone is listening to this and they're interested in, um, you know, trying their hand at making a little bit of sauerkraut, you can do it without buying a crock. You know, if you can find a jar in your pantry or your, um, uh, you know, kitchen cabinets, you can make sauerkraut in a jar. It takes about two pounds of cabbage to fill a quart-sized jar. Uh, you shred the cabbage, you lightly salt it, put it in a big bowl, squeeze it, mix it up, get it nice and juicy, then stuff it in that, stuff it in the, in the vessel, pack it really hard until you're pressing down on the vegetables and liquid rises up and you have liquid protecting the vegetables. So you can just do it in a jar. Obviously, there are limitations to the sizes of jars. You know, I, I mean, I have some nice, you know, one gallon jars, but I like to make sauerkraut in larger batches. I use Simple cylindrical crocks, you know, mostly ones that are, um, uh, you know, being manufactured today in Ohio. Uh, on my website, wildfermentation.com, I have, I have links to some places that sell crocks. But I just use simple cylindrical crocks. I put a plate that fits inside the crock that sets on the surface, and then I use a jug of water as a weight bearing down on that, and then a pillowcase or a piece of a sheet over the whole thing to keep flies out. Um, and then in the summer, I'll even tie a string or a rubber band around that to really secure it so that uh, no flies could, could get under it. You know, there are all sorts of very elegantly designed crocs, you know, some of which are considerably more expensive. You know, some are imported from Germany. There's a very popular brand called Harsh, H-A-R-S-C-H. And they're, all, they're basically designed to keep air away from the surface. I never use those because I am kind of, you know, compulsively interested in smelling and tasting my kraut as it develops. Mm -hmm. So every time you open up something like that that's designed to keep the oxygen out, you're sort of defeating the purpose of it. So I don't use those, and I just scrape away the surface molds and, and, and don't worry about it too much. If molds really freak you out, you might want to consider getting one of these sort of, you know, uh, systems designed to keep air away from it. I also do one large batch a year, a 55-gallon batch, which takes, uh, you know, 450 pounds of vegetables or something like that, and I use a, just an oak barrel for that. And you also talk about being careful about water and allowing water, if it comes from a chlorinated tap, then you need to let the water sit out and allow the chlorine to evaporate. Is yeah, that sure. I mean, let me just address that for a second. I mean, first of all, when you're making sauerkraut, you don't need to add any water. The water's all coming from the vegetables. So, But yes, if you're making ferments where you're adding water, if you're trying to make a sourdough, if you're trying to make a country wine where you're um, you know, mixing up some sugar water and then adding fruit to it, you want to work with dechlorinated water if you're on a municipal system. If you're on a well or a spring or something and it's not chlorinated, you don't have to worry about that, but if you're on a municipal system, as most people are, then you need to somehow remove the chlorine. A carbon filter will do it. If it's actually chlorine, simply evaporating it, leaving it in a bowl with a broad surface overnight or boiling it and then letting it cool down. The problem is that a lot of municipal systems have moved from chlorine to a non-volatile form uh, called chloramine, which won't evaporate the same way. So if you're in doubt, uh, just check with your system. Okay. That's really good to know. And then what would you recommend using? Well, a carbon filter will still remove the chloramine, so you could try that. Okay. All right. Well, let's get into some of the milk and dairy products. You say that yogurt is the most popular fermented food in the world. Well, at least it's, it's the most, fermented, most popular fermented dairy product. I'm not sure if yogurt is more popular than beer. 
Right, or wine. <laughs> yes, that's right. And that, I think that's interesting, too, how you talk about every culture is known to ferment beverages and, and develop alcohol for, I think you, you talk about leaving the conscious state, which is both a blessing and a burden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, for for better or for worse, you know, human beings like to alter alter our consciousness. Exactly. And, um, you know, uh, absolutely alcohol is the most widespread uh, way that people uh, that people do that. And, uh, you know, certainly there are vast areas where alcoholic beverages are prohibited. But, you know, even even in places where it's prohibited, pe- people make it. You know, it's it's very it's a natural phenomenon. You know, it, it happens. You don't have to do much to make alcohol. Um, you know, cer- certainly the processes have been, you know, refined and elaborated with great nuance. Um, and people, you know, make really fantastic things sometimes using more complicated methods. But, you know, really if you mix, you know, honey and water together, they will spontaneously ferment. If you juice apples or, uh, or press grapes, uh, you know, what, what comes out will spontaneously ferment into alcohol. Um, you know, alcoholic beverages are very, very easy to make. All right, that's good to know. I'm sure everyone is going um, to but, run but, I mean, let's talk about dairy for a second. I mean, yes. you talked you talked earlier uh, or in, in the introduction about, about milk go, going off and, you know, what people have to realize. I mean, I don't want to go into – I don't want to get too deeply into, you know, the controversies around raw milk. But, you know, the milk that goes off in your fridge is, is not milk in its, in its natural state. It's milk that's been pasteurized. So it's sort of it, – uh, pasteurized milk is what I call a microbial blank slate and a high-protein microbial blank slate, you know, a lot of different things can start growing in it. And so when your milk goes off, those are typically what we would call putrefying bacteria. The bacteria that are indigenous to milk, lactic acid bacteria, will make it acidic. They'll make it taste like yogurt, like kefir. And uh, we have a word in the English language which has become antiquated, clabbered milk. Mm-hmm. Clabbered milk is just spontaneously fermented milk that sours and thickens up a little bit in its first stage of fermentation. If it continues to sour, then you get a curdling, a separation of the milk fats and solids from the whey. But, um, you know, fresh milk is really a 20th century phenomenon because before there was widespread refrigeration, fresh milk just wasn't a practical reality. And what people all around the world have enjoyed as milk is sour milk. Mm-hmm. You know, what happens spontaneously to, uh, you know, to, to milk with its indigenous population of lactic acid bacteria. And you also describe how you can, though, make yogurt and cheese from pasteurized milk. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and you know, certainly all commercial yogurt in our time is made from from pasteurized milk. And and in fact in um you know in, in, in Turkey people always heat the milk past pasteurization temperature. Like the way I make yogurt is I, I, I take my milk, I heat it to about hundred and eighty degrees Fahrenheit, I hold it there for a few minutes just for a little bit more liquid to evaporate, then I cool it down to about hundred and fifteen degrees Fahrenheit, then I introduce my starter uh, and then and I incubate it. I keep it between 110 and 115 degrees Fahrenheit for about four to six hours. Uh, usually what I do for, use for that is simply an insulated cooler that I've preheated with some hot water. Um, I try to keep things really low-tech. And, um, you know, really all of these processes are ancient rituals that our ancestors have been doing, you know, for, for thousands of years. And in our modern kitchens, with all our modern conveniences, it's very, very easy to create the conditions that, that we need. Well, and I want to thank you for recognizing that and bringing back those lost arts because, 
as you say, you know, if we don't start collecting them, they will be lost forever. So you've really done a, a great service. We don't have much time left, and I want to jump to the back of the book, to the epilogue, A Cultural Revivalist Manifesto. And I want to thank you for bringing out several points. One is certainly that food is the greatest community builder there is. You also recognize that fermentation can be a centerpiece for economic revival. How so? Well, I mean, uh, you know, we're seeing this sort of, you know, amazing, you know, movement towards, um, you know, relocalization of our food and, and revival of local markets for food. But to, what we have to, you know, keep remembering is that, you know, the food people eat is not just the raw products of agriculture. It's all the things you can turn the raw products, products of agriculture into. You know, and really, I mean, so I, I think that, you know, some of the greatest examples of relocalization of our food is the local breweries, the local bakeries, the revival of local grain growing that they are inspiring right now. And so, you know, really most of the classic foods that we turn the products of agriculture into, or at least the ones that are stable for, for trade, are ferments. And so, you know, I think, I think it's just, it's just an integral part of the idea of, you know, relocalizing our food is, is a revival of, of the fermentation arts. And these things don't have, you know, I mean, beer brewing got to be a very centralized industry in the United States during the 20th century, you know, and it's really great to see that decentralizing and all of these, you know, great small breweries appearing, um, you know, all over the country. And, you know, the same thing, you know, can be true of, um, you know, of, of, of cheeses, um, of pickles, of sauerkraut, of, you know, many different types of, 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 of ferments, um, where it's, you know, it's simply a part of the revival of, of, of local food. Mm -hmm. And the very last paragraph of your book, I'm going to cheat and jump ahead. There's a line that I think is extremely important. You say that fermentation is one way in which we may consciously cultivate this web of life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think very, I think very much so. I mean, you know, fermentation was a realm of great mystery for for our ancestors, and um, um, you know, sort of thanks to Louis Pasteur and the emergence of the field of microbiology, we have a more rationalistic understanding of you know what what is the life force that is you know behind this this phenomenon. But I mean, I think it's 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 interesting that it is an invisible form of life, and you know, just as you know, we we, we need agriculture in our our communities because we need to have relationships with the plants and the animals that are that, that constitute our food you know similarly we have these invisible life forces that turn the products of agriculture into all the wonderful things that people love to eat and drink and um, you know I, I think that it's very it can be very powerful to cultivate a relationship with these invisible microorganisms and at least in my in my own experience it's been a, a you know kind of a profound um, um, you know a spiritual aspect of my life, uh, you know, having relationships with these um, uh, invisible life forces. Well, Sander, our time is up, but I want to thank you very much for being my guest. I want to thank you for taking the time to do the research for this book, and I highly recommend it again. Mr. Katz has traveled the world studying fermentation, and his book is a compilation of his research. It truly is a Bible, The Art of Fermentation, an in-depth exploration of essential concepts and processes from around the world, and it's actually much more. It's a beautiful and spiritual compilation of our food and food system. 
The website is wildfermentation.com. We've been speaking with Sandor Katz. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and in closing, remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Sandor, thank you so much for your work and for spending time with me. Thanks so much for having me on the show. 